Welcome to Fixing the Future, an IEEE Spectrum podcast. I'm Senior Editor Stephen Cass, and this episode is brought to you by IEEE Explorer, your gateway to trusted engineering and technology research with more than 5 million fully searchable documents. Which, on a personal note, I'll admit that may not sound super exciting, but actually, if you're like me and you're the kind of person who regularly falls down Wikipedia rabbit holes, Explorer is actually another thing you can have a great time poking around and anyone can search and read abstracts for free. In the October issue of Spectrum, we had a fantastic feature article by Britt H. Young titled The Bionic Hand Arms Race and subtitled High-Tech Hands Are Complicated, Costly and Often Impractical. In it, Britt poses the question, it's time to ask whom prostheses are really for and what we hope they will actually accomplish. I'm delighted to be able to speak with Britt today and hear more about her investigations of prosthetic hands and what does and doesn't make them useful to the wearers, and about how that issue reflects problems with assistive tech and disabled users in general. Hi Britt, welcome to Fixing the Future. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Thank you so much for coming on. Can you explain why you were motivated to ask that question about whom prostheses are really for? Well, uh, it's a lifelong experience that brought me to... uh, having that question um, repeatedly, repeatedly for myself. Um, I was first fitted with a myoelectric hand. So that's a, um, a type of prosthesis that allows the user to flex muscles inside of a socket to control, basically just open and close um, on a robotic hand. Uh, when I was perhaps about six months old. So I was actually one of the, the earliest uh, cohorts and the youngest cohorts to receive this type of hand um, in the early 90s. And um, I had been wearing what was then coming out as the um, the most advanced uh, myoelectric hands on and off um, almost ever since then until I stopped in um, around 2018. And that was when I received uh, what was hyped as the most advanced um, prosthetic hand ever produced. Um, And my experience with it was extraordinarily different than what I might have expected. And the way that these hands are um, getting pushed and advertised is that they are coming closer and closer to mimicking a lifelike human hand and fully replacing what you do not have. And in my use of these things throughout my life, I have found that they were not great replacements for what I never had. Um, But they were a tool that was sort of forcing me into a type of behavior that was unnatural. Um, But it appeared to mimic what two-handed people were doing every day. And it wasn't abundantly obvious to me that this was um, always better than doing things my way. And sometimes it took more time, sometimes it was a lot more cumbersome, less reliable. So I found that I was thinking through what exactly are these objects supposed to be doing for people missing limbs? Are they supposed to be making life easier or do they ultimately just make you look more like everybody else? And I've explored this quite a bit in my writing. Um, And when I started to look at the history of prosthetic hands, I've seen the motivations for um, what these objects are supposed to accomplish to kind of shift over time. And especially with Um, more advanced, high-tech, bionic hands, which are primarily funded by research out of the military, I started to question 
um, what these objects are supposed to really accomplish and what roles uh, disabled people actually play in the research and development of these products. So I think a lot of non-disabled people tend to have this instinctual reaction. Well, of course, why wouldn't you want the prosthesis that looks and operates as much like a human hand as possible? It's this idea of restoration. And so can you talk about why somewhat limb differences might feel differently and why maybe restoration is a really bad frame to think about how a prosthetic works in somebody's life? Well, I'll, I'll foreground with this first. Uh, the experience of people who have had a amputation and the experience of people who have a congenital deficiency or um, uh, are missing a limb at birth, like I am, those two experiences are extraordinarily different. And what people expect from technology is also very different in that respect. Um, however, my, I mean, what I sort of try to push in my writing and to think with um, is this idea that restoration or um, this attempt to make someone whole again is a um, unhelpful and possibly damaging way to go about the development of any kind of product meant for disabled people, regardless of how they have acquired their disability. Um, because the fact of the matter is you have this, you have this body um, and you are making peace with this body. Um, when you have a congenital deficiency and you are, you are born into this, you spend um, all of this time as a child figuring out how to navigate the world with the body that you have. Um, and that's a healthy thing to do. I'm not like 100% against prosthetics. I still use a prosthetic for exercise all of the time. But making peace with how your body works um, can actually open up to you um, a lot more intuitive and easier practices um, and cheaper practices um, than acquiring in a very expensive high-tech hand. Um, I have a lot of different little hacks at home um, for doing things that I find difficult for, um, for one hand, which cost um, a, 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 a tiny, tiny, minuscule fraction of what a prosthetic uh, might cost. Um, but I, I find that thinking in terms of replacing an entire body part rather than thinking through what are the specific needs of this individual kind of um, creates a product that has different motivations baked inside of it. When you're thinking through a specific problem, say tying shoelaces, and you realize that shoes in and of themselves have been designed from the beginning for two-handed people. And that we have a specific individual who says, this is really difficult for me. Um, it's not in the name of accessibility and it's not in the name of um, doing justice to this person to prescribe for them an $80,000 prosthetic hand so that they can mimic the two-handed movements that were in mind with the design of this object. And in the name of accessibility and justice for this person, we make sure that there are Velcro shoes available. We make sure that there are elastic laces available. Like I use elastic laces on my shoes. Um, I don't ever have to deal with like 
fumbling through using a myoelectric hand to hold a lace, which still, I don't care how much money these things are, like they still like are not very good at this. Um, so I think that when you approach design, especially design for disabled people, um, there is an assumption baked inside that you definitely want the thing that everybody else has and that you want to fill out that that hole we recognize it as a whole and we're going to give you the thing that fills up that hole and i i i question whether or not that that is a productive approach when most of the time there are specific tasks that can be accomplished far more simply for far less money for most people with these high-tech hands, it seems like we're really prioritizing form over function in a way. But of course, the engineers who are developing these, um, you know, they would feel that they are doing their best to create things that really are very functional, as well as something that just looks like a hand. And your article talked about the ways in which there are great promises made about functionality, but there are specific ways in which they just don't really deliver on that promise. So could you talk a little bit about that? With high-tech prosthetic hands, uh, you'll see in some of the promotional materials that um, they will show people doing things that are actually traditionally not two-handed. And I point this out because the vast, vast majority of people who are fitted with prosthetics um, are missing one limb. Um, it is a far more rare case that people are missing both of their arms and their needs are extraordinarily different than people who have a extant fleshy hand um but that is that is first and foremost the person that they are fitting um and in their materials you'll find that like you would imagine it would be framed in such a way that it's like okay you can now do the two-handed things in life but they'll still show over and over like people picking up a glass of water with the prosthetic hand and they might have extremely limited range of motion like for me my elbow uh, I have an elbow, but I have very little past that elbow, so I can't, with a prosthesis on, bend and bring a cup to my mouth. Um, and yet, I I have been asked to pick up cups by prosthetists, like, to sort of test the functionality. And it's all very abstract and, and has no relationship to how you might use a prosthesis in the day-to-day. -day. And while the manufacturers of these high-tech prosthetics promise that you will be able to do all sorts of two-handed things. The um, reality of it is there is an extraordinarily long adjustment period where you are learning how to use this thing and you are learning how to do it in the way that the prosthesis demands. And you might already have another way of doing things. Like I, I put um twist top soda bottles between my thighs and like twist off the top with my right hand and like i get it done instantaneously does it look a little silly maybe um but like lining up a prosthetic hand to hold the bottle and then twist is actually going to take a little bit more time and it's like a little bit more cumbersome people who have been doing it for years and years and years would still if they weren't wearing the prosthetic they were just they're just going to put it between their legs and twist off the cap <laughs> It's about what is immediately intuitive to your body. And that 
like instantaneous work and that ability to have haptic feedback to feel the body the the bottle squeezing between your body like all of these things they're lost with a prosthesis um so which is not to say in response to your question which is not to say that like these prostheses can't do anything it's just that what is the cost you know of like learning how to do it in this way and and the actual financial costs i mean then insurance is extraordinary hassle um in the united states and i just think that we have so much of an emphasis on these products that i i, th I think are like luxury products um and not enough emphasis on helping people do things on the day-to-day -day that's like super practical that's super concerned with their lives um and 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 getting things done, being accessible. So, what kind of reaction have you got to the article yourself? I uh, I get really fun fan mail. <laughs> um, I uh, I I've been writing for a little bit about my experience, um, missing part of my arm, navigating the world this way, uh, critiquing the industry of prosthetics, and um, I always expect some people to like be angry with me for some reason and reddit is great for that if you'll if you're looking for someone who's got a weird weird opinion that that's where you go um but the people who write me are um extremely sweet and and grateful i've met a lot of other one-handed people uh through email they they reach out and they're like you know what? i'm just so i'm just so glad that you're there and you're writing because I have never written, I have never read the opinion of somebody um, who is sim that has a similar opinion to me um, in the mainstream media. So I'm, I'm really excited about that. And a lot of engineers have also reached out. Um, they are grateful for uh, this perspective. Um, I think that they, uh, in the spirit of human centered design, uh, want to incorporate this kind of feedback. And so I think that the engineers who are already primed to be uh, recipients for this kind of feedback are the most receptive. Um, and I, but I do wonder if there are others out there who um, are still really committed to the project of the extremely high-tech prosthetic hand that, you know, is the is the thing that will will do everything for you. Um, and I wonder if I have to write in a different way to reach them. Speaking of that and moving to the broader scope of assistive technology in general, it seems like this experience with these prosthetic hands is part of a pattern of unwanted and over-engineered devices that people in other disabled communities would find very familiar. Um, for example, many people who are blind or have low vision are really exasperated by the constant attempts to reinvent the white mobility cane and by replacing it with remote sensors or adding some form of augmentation. Uh, they like to point out that the current canes are inexpensive, light, they fold away easily, they never need to be recharged, they provide excellent haptic feedback, and they also signal to other people that the cane user isn't likely to be able to see them. And sort of from this kind of experience, disability advocates have I hear this term called a disability dongle. Can you explain what a disability dongle is? So Liz Jackson is responsible for uh, coining that term, disability dongle, um, which is a uh, which is an object that 
um, maybe a firm, you know, com comes up with uh, as a uh, as a way to advertise their goodwill um, toward the disability community, um, an, an object that is uh, supposedly designed with good intention to help the disabled community, when uh, in fact, from the very get go, this object never had the input of the disabled community. I think that when you were talking about the um, the 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 canes, these these um, this attempt to create like a high tech cane, um, there is baked into the future design of these things this assumption that uh, disabled people don't want to be seen as disabled and they don't want to um, be recognized for uh, the experiences that they have that like we would all be we would rather be undercover. Um, and I think that that speaks to a really tricky dynamic in, in all of this, especially designed for disabled people, where I think one of the primary functions of a, a cosmetic prosthesis is to disappear into the crowd and to be left alone. And I, for many, many years, wore a cosmetic prosthesis because I wanted people to leave me alone. Um, that is a very real function of a prosthesis, even if outside of that, it did nothing else. I couldn't do things with it. It couldn't hold an umbrella, etc. cetera. Um, but disability is social. Disability is, um, is a created experience because of the way the world was built around us and how people respond to it. If there were ramps everywhere, in the same way that we like have the availability of eyeglasses basically everywhere, it wouldn't be seen as a problem to have um, a mobility disability. Almost wouldn't be called a disability. Like I'm wearing eyeglasses right now, like so many people wear vision correcting glasses and yet it's not seen as a disability. It's so widespread and it's like so cheap, accessible to correct it that, um, it's not even seen as a disability anymore. Um, and yet there's, there's still, there are so many other disabilities that require the sort of acknowledgement culturally, the acknowledgement of people around them uh, to be able to navigate the world. I'm constantly asking for assistance for certain things. Um, your disability is, your disability visibility is almost, vital to your functioning, but also for the fight that is like keeping disability visible so that we can keep making things accessible for us. And if we disappear behind a, a high tech cane or um, a super awesome high tech hand or whatever, um, that is kind of like not doing the work of showing that disability has needs and that they are they are social, you know, um, to really correct the injustices that come out of disability, they have to be seen. Here in New York, as well as other places, there's an annual disability pride parade. And I think that gets to why people would march in a parade that's called disability pride. And um, that sort of idea of advocacy brings us to another phrase that disability advocates use, which is nothing about us without us. 
And that speaks to, there's a very long history where non-disabled people, usually with good intentions, sometimes not so much, um, have been making decisions for disabled people and very fundamental things like reproductive rights or where you live. And it's a very darkest aspect, who lives and who dies. So, you know, how might engineers working on assistive technology work with disabled people instead of trying to work for disabled people? Obviously, I don't speak for any any significant percentage of of disabled people. It's like the the single most diverse marginalized group in the world by category. Um, and yet, I think what I try to do in my writing and public speaking is um, try to question the work that is being done in the name of us. Um, and I think that it's, it's, it's a really tricky thing. I mean, I, one day maybe I want to do a bunch of interviews with people who have decided that they want to design things for disabled people and find out when that moment was. Was it in college? Did they meet somebody? Did they just see a video? Um, and I ask this because we're always talking about like, okay, you're developing this product. You really need to have um, input from the intended user. But when is this input, right? Like you've already started the project. You've already decided that you wanna make the high-tech hand. It's, it's nice if you have a trial period um, where you fit people missing their hands with your hand and then you see how they, and then you tinker with it a little bit. But like, from the get-go, the project was decided by you because you wanted to make a hand, which is fine, but you can't then later say this is for disabled people. You can say, I just wanted to really make a hand. It's cool. We haven't yet perfectly recreated a hand. That's like an art project. Or maybe if you do a really, really good job, then maybe the robotics in this thing end up in car manufacturing or something, you know? Um, so I like part of me wants to say, if you're in the business of quote, helping people <laughs> like unquote, it would be fantastic if someone had approached you and said, I have this specific problem. Can you help me design something for this specific problem? And then that's, that's where you're like, that's where the design at its core, like at the seed moment is invested in the person and their activities. And like, I can't say that that is something that has to happen <laughs> for everybody, of course. But it, do you see the, do you see the difference I'm trying to? Yeah, it's like, what are people actually asking for instead of what do you think that they want? Or, you know, what is the nail to your hammer? And um, maybe you're technically skilled and you want to help people, but maybe your particular skills are, are not just a great fit. And maybe then there are other things that you could do. And there's no shortage, I think, of disability groups who'd be very happy to tell you a list of things that they would like done. And yet with like design for disabled people, uh, it's it feels like people can just like wake up one day and say, you know what, I'm going to solve like the like vision, all vision disabilities or like um, and I'm, I'm going to just like single handedly go to this, you know, engineering class and like propose a solution. And um, I think there has to be like more humility in this approach as if, and it is, <laughs> like a multifaceted, pre-existing, 
disability movement that like is out there that you need to educate yourself with um, and situate yourself based on your particular skill set um, before you make something new. Well, that is good advice, but I'm afraid we're going to have to leave it there. But thank you so much, Britt, for, for taking the time to talk with us today. Thank you. Thank you. I had a lot of fun. Me too. So today in Fixing the Future, we were talking with Britt Young about high-tech prosthetics and how they really serve their users. I'm Stephen Cass of IEEE Spectrum, and I hope you'll join us next time.